Hi, my name is John Breyer, and I'm here with Mainly Matters today to talk about a girl named Christina Breyer. Christina is actually my daughter, and I thought that uh, given the current national discussion on immigration on the southern border, that this might be a topical thing to talk about. Um, Christina, just by way of uh, her ties to Maine, she actually came to the United States uh, for the first time in 2015 on a student visa, and she attended Erskine Academy uh, in in China, Maine. So um, historically, though, uh, Christina, um, I first met Christina when she was about, um, I guess, 10 years old. So she's actually my wife's younger sister. And at the time, I was um, working um, and visiting in Colombia, the country of Colombia. And I met Christina for the first time. Her father was deceased, um, and she was uh, living at that time with uh, her her biological mother. Um, it was a challenging situation. Um, not a lot of money there. Um, a lot of uh, things that had happened in the past that made it difficult for her. She had a very tough childhood, I would say, as you can maybe imagine um, from someone growing up in and uh, in Medellin, Colombia. So anyways, I began taking care of Christina somewhat um, when she was just about 10 years old by helping financially, uh, paying for her school in Colombia, trying to help out as best I could. Um, eventually, um, I did end up moving to Medellin, Colombia, uh, for a little over uh, approximately a year. And while I was there, her uh, family basically dropped her off at, at my doorstep, at our doorstep uh, with a trash bag full of her belongings and um, signed some uh, pa- papers and just basically said, she's your responsibility. So at that, from that point on, it was just before Christmas, uh, Christina was living with, uh, with me full time. Um, Shortly after our time in in Colombia, I moved up to Panama to continue working there, and uh, brought Christina with us. So she was living in Panama City. Um, my younger daughter was born, so we were all uh, living together. And I enrolled Christina in a private school in Panama City called the Canadian International School. She learned English, and um, we were continuing to look at, at options to, you know, formally adopt her and to be able to um, get her to the United States permanently. During that process, um, I was coming back to Maine for the summer, and I, I went to the U.S. Embassy in Panama City with Christina and applied for her to get a tourist visa so that she could visit Maine um, when I went there for the summer. Of course, I brought all the necessary documents showing that her family had signed her over to us, showing her showing that she had medical insurance in Panama um, under under my name, showing that she was enrolled in a private school in Panama City, and that I was paying the tuition. And I even even brought uh, my deed for my house in Maine to prove that you know I had a house in Maine and and all that. Nonetheless, they denied her a tourist visa and uh, told me that. Legally, I had no standing uh, in regard to Christina. So she wasn't able to go to Maine with us that summer. 
when I returned to Panama after our summer in Maine, um, decided to try to get Christina a student visa, and Erskine Academy was at the top of the list. Um, one of my good friends, uh, Colonel Jack Mosier, uh, former chief of staff of the Maine National Guard, uh, lived in China, Maine, spoke with him. He hooked me up with uh, people at Erskine. Uh, and we applied for a student visa. She was accepted at Erskine. Um, we went back to the U.S. Embassy for a student visa interview, and uh, they gave it to her. So she was able to uh, leave Panama. She flew with myself and uh, my younger daughter, Katie. We all flew into Boston, direct from Panama City, Panama. I drove up to Maine and uh, spent a little bit of time up there, got her acclimated, um, got her into her housing. She was actually going to be living during the school year uh, at Colonel Jack Mosher's house. Two of his boys were attending Erskine at the time. Um, I had to return to Florida. So there she was in the United States legally going to school at Erskine Academy. I had to pay the tuition uh, like you have to do for these student visa things, 100 cents on the dollar. So it was close to $40,000 to make that happen. But she was getting a good education. She was up at Erskine. She was safe. Uh, during spring break uh, from Erskine, she flew down to Florida. And um, we had started the process, obviously, earlier than that. Uh, went into uh, the courtroom in Miami and adopted her. Yeah, it was a good day. Judge actually said he sees a lot of bad things in, in family court in general, but that this was a, a happy thing and a good thing. And um, she was adopted, and she changed her name from, at that point, to Christina Breyer. Uh, we left the courtroom, went over to another facility with the um, certified adoption documents, and they generated her Florida birth certificate. So this was in 2016, actually. Um, she was 15 years old at the time. So uh, she now had a Florida birth certificate. She was formally adopted and um, spent some time with her. She flew back up to Maine and continued her education at Erskine Academy. Uh, we had to submit those documents to the IRS. There's a formal process for that once you adopt someone. Um, and they, they, they look over the adoption papers and um, it, it takes a few weeks. And they do that because they want to scrutinize them, make sure they're legitimate and, and whatnot because of tax purposes. And they finished that uh, review and they issued Christina her ITIN, her individual taxpayer identification number. And they also issued me uh, the adoption tax credit. So um, for the last five years, Christina has been listed on my tax returns as a dependent because she is a legal dependent. Of course, we got our U.S. medical insurance under my plan. So at this point, Christina has legal adoption documents. Her name has been changed legally to Christina Breyer. She has uh, full U.S. medical insurance, and she has an IRS-issued taxpayer identification number. We then applied for her um, I-130, which is essentially a green card, which she's eligible for from the adoption. And after you get that, you're then eligible to apply for U.S. citizenship, which she would get as well. Um, when we went to apply for it, we learned that under USCIS uh, immigration rules, because she was adopted while she was here on a student visa, 
which is a visa not intended to lead to permanent residency, that we actually couldn't file that I-130 for two years post the adoption date. That threw a big monkey wrench into everything because it it made it uh, unclear whether she had legal status in the United States outside of her student visa. Um, she had obtained her driver's permit in Maine um, and uh, was getting ready to get a driver's license, which she was eligible for under the student visa, but now it was not clear whether she was eligible for that uh, given the fact that she was applying for the I-130 that we had to wait two years for. So um, very confusing and, and kind of didn't make a lot of sense, but those were the rules. So we decided that uh, it would be a good idea for Christina to go back to Columbia uh, to finish school. And um, during that time, we would wait until the two-year anniversary to file the I-130 application which we were told at the time would take three to four months once we filed it, and then she'd return to the United States with her green card and then go for the citizenship. So we did that. Um, she returned to Columbia, and uh, the two-year anniversary came up in 2018, filed the I-130 as soon as we could, and um, nothing happened. It just languished for literally years. Um, Christina has a medical condition. She's got a, a stomach, uh, intestinal issue that puts her at risk for immune issues and whatnot. So she had no medical insurance in Colombia, but full medical insurance here in the United States. So I, um, I applied for a medical visa for her while we were waiting for the I-130 to continue processing. And, uh, we applied for that in, uh, February of, 2020. And we got the appointment for an emergency medical hearing at the U.S. Embassy in Bogota scheduled for April of 2020. Um, I had doctors here in Florida uh, review her medical files, and they issued letters stating that they were ready to take over her care. Once she arrived in the United States, they verified that, they, uh, that her medical insurance was in full effect in the United States. And she went to doctors in Colombia who wrote up the diagnosis and what type of treatment she would need. And they also noted that COVID was just starting to emerge around the world. And they noted that um, she was more at risk to uh, serious consequences from COVID, even though she had a, at a young age because of the uh, medical condition. So we had the emergency medical visa scheduled for April. I saw that uh, COVID was starting to ramp up and I was concerned they were going to cancel or close the U.S. Embassy in Bogota. So I reached out to the U.S. Embassy in Bogota directly. I asked for um, an expedited uh, medical interview, um, if they could move the date up. I uh, used the Washington, uh, D.C. White House website to try to communicate with the White House. I engaged uh, congressmen and senators um, there was even a letter issued to um, then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo from a Florida congressman asking that he help uh, make sure Christina could uh, get to the United States. But nothing happened and nothing worked. And the U.S. Embassy in Bogota did, in fact, shut down. And her April interview for the emergency medical condition was never able to be had. So she was stuck in Colombia with no medical insurance, and uh, COVID was starting to ramp up. 
and the I-130 that we had pending. Everything got slowed down even further because of COVID. So um, I was trying everything I could to get her here. I uh, started an online petition. I started a website, Help Christina Breyer. Um, over 2,000 people signed the online petition. I had various uh, congressional and senator offices uh, I was working with who were trying to, to help me. But nothing materialized of substance. It's a very frustrating process. Um, I will say Senator Rubio's office has been extremely helpful. Uh, they've been, you know, they've done everything they, they can uh, to, which is limited what they can do. Uh, you know, they're not allowed to interfere or intervene in immigration issues, but they can do things like check on the status of a filing, um, ask that a a review get ex gets expedited, and, and they've been fabulous and um, uh, continuing to work with them to this day. And I'm very thankful for for um, Senator Rubio and his uh, immigration staff that's helping us. But nonetheless, uh, she's still not here, and so I made the decision. I after President Biden got elected, we saw that uh, supposedly um, things were going to ease up. So we filed a petition for uh, parole, and they call it parole, into the United States. Essentially, it's a way that if someone has a pending process, which she does, the I-130, uh, that they can be allowed into the United States, totally legal, to stay here while their process continues to pend. Again, in her case, she has a Florida birth certificate, an IRS-issued taxpayer ID no number, and full medical insurance in the United States. So uh, we filed the um, the request for um, humanitarian parole, and we did it in person. I drove last week. I drove uh, 13 hours with a friend of mine, uh, actually a University of Maine fraternity brother, Ed Weinmayer. We drove to the Texas border in Laredo, uh, Texas, um, from Pensacola, Florida, and uh, we flew Christina uh, to Mexico. So um, there she was. Uh, she's 20 years old now, by the way, but and that is still considered a minor under federal immigration policy. So she was on uh, in Nuevo Laredo in Mexico, about a half a mile away from where I was in Laredo, Texas. Now, I haven't seen Christina in person in over three years, which is terrible. We talk regularly via video, chat, and whatnot, but I've not seen her in over three years. So there she was, half a mile away, and um, I had over 400 pages of documentation that my immigration attorney had helped prepare. We had the formal request for humanitarian parole, and um, I did what I was told to do. We went to Custom and Border um, patrol officers at, at uh, bridge number two, which is where people can go and to come and go into Mexico on the morning of March 16th. At the same time, Christina, um, who, by the way, she traveled to Mexico with a, a U.S. citizen friend of mine. So she wasn't alone. Uh, she was with a, an adult. So they started across the bridge and we approached uh, CBP officers and presented the uh, 
humanitarian parole documents. I was told I had to go over to bridge number uh, one, which was only about a couple hundred yards away to do that. So I began uh, walking through Laredo, Texas at uh, 6.30 in the morning in the dark. It's a pretty strange town, by the way, uh, over to bridge number one, where we approached uh, Custom and Border Patrol officers who were there in the receiving end of, of that side of the bridge um, and uh, approached them and they asked what I was doing there. I, I said I was told to come to give you these documents. Uh, one of them actually questioned why I had come over that way to, to where they were and told me that uh, that they could have shot me, <laughs> which was interesting to say the least. But they were fairly nice after that. And a supervisor came out and he reviewed some of the documents that I had. Um, couldn't understand how she had a Florida birth certificate because apparently that's not something they see very often when someone's asking for parole. But they quickly ascertained what it was, what the situation was. They realized that she'd been to the U.S. previously on a, a student visa, hadn't overstayed her visa, had no violations, so she'd been allowed to come here legally, uh, left um, without any overstay was legally adopted. They looked at it all and they were, the gentleman told me, this looks looks good to me, but it's uh, at this point it was like 7.30 in the morning. He said, I, I my shift ends at eight. Um, and he gave me that phone number and the name of the supervisor in charge of paroles who we said got in at eight. And he said, uh, why don't you just wait wait an hour or so and um, you know call him back. So we did, waited a couple hours, didn't hear anything. Uh, Christina was now at this point back uh, waiting at the at the Mexican side uh, with my friend and um, never heard anything. Tried calling the number. It didn't work. So we went back to uh, CBP, uh, the main office, which was over at bridge number uh, two. And uh, they were very helpful and, and kind and told us that we had to ask for a certain supervisor who was in a meeting over at uh, bridge number one <laughs> that normally uh, she would have been where we were, but that she was over at a meeting because of all the new changes that were going on with the Biden administration regarding the border. So we walked back over to that location and we asked for that supervisor and she came out um, with uh, another um, CBP officer and uh, she was very professional, but rather cold. Um, she looked at some of the documents, but did not want the, you know, the 400 pages that we had to support the request for humanitarian parole. I explained to her uh, why it was very dangerous for Christina to not be in the United States at this time. Um, explained her medical condition, showed her my honorable discharge papers from the army. She said, she actually said, that doesn't matter. Um, showed her I offered to pay a bond there's it used to be or there is some process where you can pay a bond if someone is coming in from another country while they await their uh, uh, immigration documents to to complete and basically you lose the bond if if they you know break the rules or something I, I actually had uh, taken some money out of my 401k and I brought my checkbook and I offered a fifty thousand dollar bond to allow Christina to come in. She told me that that wasn't something they were doing anymore. I also learned that uh, uh, 
the Laredo border was no longer accepting asylum seekers, although that's not what she was seeking. Contrary to what you might see in the media, uh, CBP has stopped even allowing uh, southern border immigrants to request asylum at certain locations, and that was one of them. But that was really irrelevant to us. So she she told me that uh, they had rules and procedures, but that they uh, would review all the information. And she took my phone number down and said that they would get back to me um, when they made their decision. Now, this was on Tuesday morning now at around 10 a.m. on March 16th. I explained to her again that Christina was across the border, staying in a Holiday Inn Express. It was dangerous. Nuevo Laredo, which is the Mexican side, is a very dangerous town. Uh, the hotel she was in actually had bullet holes in the windows, um, armed Mexican federal police with M60 machine guns truck mounted up in front of the hotel 24-7 to protect the guests. Uh, very dangerous town. Um, 19 people were found killed and burned there uh, just about uh, a month ago. It, it's just a dangerous place. So um, she told me to, to go back, you know, to relax, sit down wherever I was going to go, and that they would contact me, but not to contact them, that they would contact me. So we left and uh, no phone call came, no contact. So Christina stayed in the hotel on the Mexican side, and my friend and I, we drove back to Pensacola, couldn't stay there in Laredo. So did, you know, 26-hour round-trip drive in a day and a half, but waiting uh, in Pensacola for someone to call, and no one called on Wednesday, no one called on Thursday. Um, so on Friday, my immigration attorney uh, was able to get through to someone. I tried sending a fax to the Laredo CBP office with a request for information. Their fax number that's published on their website wasn't working. I tried again calling the main number and calling the number that I'd been given previously, and there was no way to actually get through to a live person or even leave a message. So feeling kind of helpless, I did eventually send that same fax to the CBP office in um, another border crossing location in Texas in El Paso and their fax machine was working. And I asked in the cover sheet that they deliver that to the, the person I was trying to get a hold of in, in, um, Laredo at CBP. Not sure if they ever did. Um, Senator Rubio's office was helpful as well in trying to get some contact information for me from CBP headquarters. And, um, my lawyer was eventually able to get through someone on the phone, and they told me that the person that uh, was in charge of making that decision was out to lunch and would be back in about 90 minutes and would call my lawyer back. So this was around uh, 12, 31 o'clock central on this past Friday. At that point, Christine had been sitting across the border for uh, almost four days while we were waiting on a decision. My lawyer called me back about an hour later and told me that uh, a staff member from CBP Laredo had called to tell him that they were denying the request for parole because of the COVID-related travel restrictions. So what does that mean? That means that my daughter, who has two U.S. citizen parents, who has legally been adopted in the state of Florida, who literally gets my social security, a part of it, if I die, 
who has a Florida birth certificate, who has an IRS-issued taxpayer ID number, who's been legally listed on my taxes for five years now as a dependent, who has full medical insurance in the United States, and who has previously been in the United States legally and not overstayed the visa, was denied permission to walk half a mile to rejoin her father and to be in the United States while her I-130 continues to process. Something that was totally legal and able to be done was not done. At the same time, we're reading that thousands, right now, thousands of migrants, um, immigrants who've migrated to the United States and came in either illegally or requested asylum who have no legal status. They don't have birth certificates. They haven't been adopted. They don't have IRS-issued taxpayer ID numbers. They don't have medical insurance. They're being released to family members and friends in the United States while their cases continue to pend. And in many cases, they're getting stimulus checks from what I've been told and what I've read. They're getting medical care on taxpayer dollars. While my daughter is told no, you're not allowed to come back into the United States. So it's a very frustrating process. Um, and I just wanted to share that because uh, I think some people might find it interesting to see how complicated and confusing and just unjust our current immigration system is. Uh, to date, when you count the Erskine Academy tuition and different other things, uh, you know, this. We've spent legal fees, whatnot, you know, probably eighty, ninety thousand dollars on this to date. It's taken many years, and we're doing it the legal way. Um, but it's just sad to me. It's very sad to know that, you know, here I am, a half a mile away from her, and they won't let her in. And she's in a very dangerous situation. It's not safe for her to be not in the United States. Uh, that was made very clear to the CBP people and to other people in immigration. Yet still, we have to wait. Um, eventually, you know, she should be able to get here. She will. The I-130, I filed a new one uh, last year, late last year. That's pending. We have another I-131 pending, which is a an actual request for humanitarian parole. Um, that's pending. So... You know, it'll it'll resolve itself, but not without a lot of uh, pain and uh, suffering. You know, it's not fair. I don't think that that we're in this situation. And I just thought it would be worth sharing because this is a girl who's been to Erskine Academy. Right? She was in Maine. She's been up there a couple a uh, couple times and um, legally is entitled to citizenship, but. They wouldn't let her cross the bridge in Laredo. And that really bothers me. So I just thought I'd share that with you folks. And um, I appreciate you listening. And thank you for listening to Mainly Matters. Thanks for stopping by. I'll be back with a new episode in the near future. <laughs>